it's an honor to be up here. I'm uh, not quite used to this, so especially with the talking in the mic, so uh, first time speaking like this, so pardon any sloppiness. Uh, I got a lot, a lot to say, so I'm just going to jump right into it. I want to start by proposing a question for you to ponder today. Do you know why you do the things that you do? The good things, the bad things, the ugly things. It's a question that I've pondered for a long time. And I want to talk about that today because I feel like it's vitally important to life. A little uh, about myself. Um, even at a young age, I had a strong inclination towards my inner self. That part of you that's between you and God, in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. All the, the mystery of what all that is. I've always wanted to find out about that. And that really skyrocketed uh, about four years ago, maybe, when I took the School of Kingdom Ministry class we offer here. Now, going into that class, I was not in a good place. I wouldn't say I was suicidal, but I just didn't have a whole lot to live for. Um, God had already blown my mind with just an outrageous display of love. So I knew he had something for me, but... I was just tired of doing this religious game. I've grown up with religion, and I was just really tired of all that stuff. I'm like, God, I'm desperate here. And so that was my attitude going into the class. Like, if you have something for me, meet me here. And he did that. Uh, changed my life. Changed um, how I viewed my identity. The way I viewed my identity before was crippling to my walk with the Lord. How I view myself and how I view God will really affect how I steward my inner life. And no one else is going to steward that for you. No one else gets to see inside into your inner life at first. But what we put in, in our mind, in our heart, it doesn't stay hidden forever. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The stuff that goes on inside of us it eventually finds its way out. I think we've all had those moments where we've blurted something out, immediately regretted it, and said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know where that came from. Well, it came from somewhere. It came from in here. That's why it's vitally important that we watch over our inner life. Scripture says it like this in Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And we tend to see the heart kind of like a base for our emotions, like, oh, all my love, all my hate, all, all that stuff flows from there. But that's not, that wasn't how the, the Jews understood the heart. In this verse here, the Hebrew word is leb or labe, lab. It's one of those. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it can mean literally heart or figuratively the feelings, the will, the intellect the center of a thing. It's from that internal center that we live out our external life. Bill Johnson thinks of it like this. God wants to develop the health of our inner world so that he can trust us with influence in the external world. Without a healthy inner life, we won't be able to stand up under the pressures that life puts on us, and it has a lot of pressure. Have you ever wanted to be able to stand strong in peace, unshaken by all the circumstances of life that it throws at you. 
because Scripture promises that for us. It says we can walk like that. And it starts here on the inside. So why do we do what we do? Sometimes we don't even notice what we do. I've had a lot of self-realization where I've looked over, I've seen someone doing something, and I'm like, how can they be doing that? And then I realize, I do that. <laughs> like, what? I, saw, I noticed it over there on that guy, but I didn't see it on myself. Because sin works like that. It's deceptive. It's the nature of deception that you don't know you're being deceived. And it can hide right in front of our face. <laughs> That's why I believe the prophetic is so important in the life of the church. The prophetic voice, it discerns the heart of God and it points people towards it, individually, collectively. It's kind of like a compass towards God's heart. Something that I always ask myself these days, or I try to, is in a circumstance, God, where are you? Not in a doubtful way, but in a relational way. Many of you probably know Lacey Hill. She was here, awesome woman. I follow her adventures online. And one thing she was doing, she'd post a picture of just some scene, this ordinary scene where God had broken in. She would hashtag it, I see you, God. So she was looking for God in the midst of the ordinary for him to break into that. Because when you can see God's heart in a situation, it'll change your heart in the situation. It's a good thing to look for. But sometimes we can't see him. Sometimes we can't hear what's really going on. Again, deception. It's deceiving. When that prophetic voice says, hey, we're missing the mark. This isn't what God wants for us. It's that opportunity to recenter ourselves, to say, I can leave that sin behind. He'd do that to me, wouldn't he? Yeah. What was I doing? Oh. Yeah, it's that opportunity to leave sin behind because sin, sin will ruin the health of our inner world. And we see that happen quite a lot in the Old Testament. Israel would stray, sin would ruin them, and a prophet would arise and would call them back to righteousness, would call them back to the place they were supposed to be. A New Testament prophecy, it doesn't function in quite that same way, but the role is still the same. It's that calling back. Because sometimes we don't realize what's really motivating us. A prime example of two guys who thought they were doing God a favor, but they didn't actually even know where his heart was, is found in Luke 9. A town turns its nose up at Jesus, and James and John, the Thunder Boys, they say, Lord, Shall we call fire down upon them? Shall we smite them? We laugh, but there's plenty of so-called prophets who still try and proclaim doom over people's sin today. But Jesus, he rebuked them. And some manuscripts record him saying, you don't know the manner of spirit you're of. See, that's the heart of all this, pardon the pun. They were focused, they thought they were just focused on an external thing. This town rejected Jesus, and they wanted to punish them for it. But Jesus, he saw through that. He saw what was going on inside of them. He basically said, you don't even know why you're saying that. 
Sometimes we don't see how sin is affecting us on the inside, how it's influencing our decisions. It's slow. It's insidious. When Cain was angry with Abel, God came to him. He said, sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you. Long before Cain contemplated murder, he opened that door and let anger into his heart. And it stayed there until he acted on it. No one just wakes up someday and says, hey, you know, that, no. <laughs> yeah. No one just wakes up and says, you know, I think I'm going to cheat on my spouse today. I think it's a good thing to do. Never starts there. It is the little sins left unaccounted for that lead to big problems. I find it fascinating in that passage. God talks about sin like it has personhood, like sin wants us. It desires for us, and he's not here, so probably don't need to make the reference for brownie points, but in the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Where is he? Oh. Yeah, yeah, there he is. Mm. Yeah. In the Lord of the Rings, the ring... ring is just an object, but it reached out to everyone around it. It wanted to control them. Sin is still crouching at our door. It still wants to control us. The enemy still wants to put a hook in us wherever he can, and he wants to. And one of the most common places that sin crouches, I've found, is in our media and our entertainment, our music, our games, our books, all that stuff. And now, I'm not complaining. We live in an amazing age. Like, I don't have to be a musician. I don't have to have a team of minstrels around me. I can click my fingers, and genuine worship, good worship, can just pop up like that. And the amazing thing is, I can actually encounter God through this recording. Like, <laughs> this is just amazing. What a time to be alive. The, the possibility where God can break through through these medias, this is amazing. But like anything get twisted up, and it can influence us for the wrong purpose. I want to tell you a little story about influence from my own life. Uh, when I was little, I grew up with classic rock. My mother, my father both liked it. It was fun. It was catchy. I liked it. And probably in high school, my mother started to get a little bit concerned because it was all I listened to. And she was talking to me about it. Oh, it's good to listen to worship music. It's good to do other things. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Old people. <laughs> and some more time went on. My pastor at the time eventually sat down, talked to me. He's like, hey, you know, that stuff's fine, but you need to balance it. You need to, you know, that stuff's fun, but you need to listen to things that are important as well. I was like, yeah, 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 I am. More old people that is talking. They didn't know. They didn't know what was going on. It wasn't affecting me. I was just, it was fun. <laughs> so more time passes, and my tastes get louder and more aggressive. And eventually I found, up, uh, found myself listening to a group called Slipknot. If you're familiar with... Yeah. I won't say it again. All right. If you're, f if you're familiar with them, you know they're not the most positive of people. I was listening, I still remember the day, I was listening to a song called People Equal Crap. And... Uh, 
That's the church-friendly version of the name. And I'm nodding along. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I still remember I, the feeling inside, the shift, when I agreed with it. I said, yeah, this is right. And I remember because it shocked me. It scared me because I felt it inside become real to me. And that's when I stopped. All those old people were right. It wasn't just catchy. It wasn't just fun. It was influential. The music I listened to so frequently started to change the way I saw the world around me. The things we constantly pay attention to will shape us. That's why it's been said, we become what we behold. It's a very poignant statement. When our focus is on the natural world, we will be just like the world. That's why our focus has to be set on heaven. In Colossians 3, it says, set your eyes on things above, not on things that are on earth. When we talk about setting our eyes, we're not talking about just looking at things. There are plenty of Christian ghettos that they recognize sin is an issue, and they pull themselves away, and they say, well, we're not going to be a part of that. We're just going to be at an arm's distance away from things. That's not how Jesus was. He sent us out into the world. He was in the world amidst all kinds of sin, but it didn't affect him because his eyes were set on things above. That word set in Hebrew is the word phroneo. It means to exercise the mind, to be mentally disposed in a certain direction, to interest oneself in, to set affection on. The good news is, just like the, how the world can influence us, we can let God influence us as well. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, awesome verse, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. I want to ask you today, is there a veil over your face? There's no veil between us and God. He tore it down. We have full access to God. But that's not going to stop us from still putting stuff up in front of our face. It'll block that connection. You see, he, he said we'd be transformed into the same likeness of Christ. So if the last time he checked, you weren't really looking like Jesus, what is in the way? What in your life? is stopping that from happening. In all this inner life talk, there's a question that I wrestled with for so many years, and it's this. How can I guard my heart when my heart is wicked? There is a verse in Jeremiah people often quote. It's Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? People use this verse to validate how they feel on the inside. And it makes sense. I've been through my share of heartbreak, and it sure feels like my heart has been betraying me. Well, this verse in Jeremiah, it's talking about the unredeemed heart. In Ezekiel, it was prophesied of the new covenant, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will take away their heart of stone, and I will give them a heart of flesh. In other places of the New Covenant, it says God will write his laws on our hearts so we'll know his will in our hearts. Mm. This is huge. And before I continue that thought, I really want to reinforce a foundational anchor point. Briefly, briefly, this is a big hole. It's a lot to go into and to dive into, but I just want to touch on it because I feel like it's very important for where we're going. And if you're skeptical of this, if you're like, that's not the way I've heard it, 
I would ask you to say, okay, if that's true, then what? Peter says, uh, if, if all this is true, then how shall we live? So to have that if, and I would implore you in this, because for me, this was probably one of the biggest revelations about my identity. It changed the way I interacted in life. It's about the sin nature. We didn't become sinners when we sinned as children. We were born with a sinful nature. It was passed down from Adam and Eve when they took the fruit off the tree. It went inside them. It became a part of who they were. It wasn't just that we needed our sin forgiven. In the Old Testament, it says their sins were forgiven. It was that sin lived inside of us. It permeated who we are, so we would react sinfully, naturally. But in Christ, we joined with him in his death. Our sin nature died and was buried with him, and we are raised with him in new life. We have a new spirit. Now, many believers have heard a different picture. It goes like this. When Jesus died on the cross and was raised, he dealt like a death blow to sin, where it's dying, but it's not quite gone yet. And then the Holy Spirit came inside of us, and he tries to make us do good things, and that sin nature tries to make us do bad things, and the tension we feel inside is from that, because we definitely feel tension inside. But the problem with that view is that Scripture doesn't say that. In uh, Romans 6, awesome set of verses, verses 2 through 8, it says this. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It's a lot of scripture like that, and it all says we died to sin. It doesn't say we're dying to sin. It says it has passed away. It's not passing away. And the language here, oh, well, it's a, metaf- it's a metaphoric death. But it can't be that because he compares it side by side with Christ's death. And if Christ didn't really die, then our faith is nothing. There's so, so many scriptures on this. I'm just throwing out some, Roman, all of Romans 6. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Galatians 2, 20. Scriptures reinforce this. And so if you're skeptical of that idea, like, oh, my, that my sin nature is actually dead, I would encourage you, just like the Bereans in Acts, that they search the scriptures to see if it was true. So going forward, if, if all that is true, if our sin nature is really dead, a question immediately arises, and it's, why do I still sin? Furthermore, why do I still want to sin? Like if I'm dead to sin, if I'm free from sin, why does it sometimes not feel like that at all? Those are good questions. They're good answers. And as with most big questions, we go back to the beginning to find the answer. In Genesis, in the garden, Adam and Eve were perfect. They had no fault. They were exactly as they were intended to be, with no sin nature. And yet, the devil came to Eve and tempted her. And after he tempted her, she thought about the temptation. 
she thought about the fruit. And when she saw the fruit was good to eat, she desired the fruit. And then she took the fruit. Isn't that just what happens to us? Temptation comes. We're thinking about it. And hey, it looks pretty good. Now I want it. And then we do it. It's the same thing. The more we set our eyes on sin, the more we want it, the more normal it becomes, and the more justifiable it becomes. This is why sexual sin is so deceptive. It blurs the line in our head where it just, we desire it so much and it seems so right that we just can't see how much it's stealing from us. Deceitful desires, they're grown from thinking on the wrong things. Jesus talked about desire. In fact, he says God wants to give us the desires of our heart. When you read John 14 through 16, his whole dialogue there, I think it's like five times or so he says that. Like God wants to give you the desires of your heart. But it's all based on the fact that we are abiding in him. Abiding, that's a fancy word we don't use these days. To spend time with him, to give him our affection, to set our mind on him, that when he is our focus, then our desire lines up with him. When we're looking at his heart, our heart becomes like his heart, and our desires match his desires. And when just like that, when we keep our affections on things that aren't that good, our desires are for those things that aren't that good. And it reinforces over time that, yeah, this is good. I want this. And it just continues the cycle. We just feel like, oh, it's just a part of me inside. It's not a part of you. It's a habit that you've formed. I know I've formed them. Last month in Eric Shanley's talk on thankfulness, he brought up a study that researched the negative effects on the brain, specifically with complaining. He found that when people complain all the time, it rewires their brain that they start to think that way naturally, that when a situation occurs, they automatically respond with a negative. It's pretty powerful. Um, if you struggle with negative responses, I know I have, something happens, you immediately react out of anger. It's like, what's wrong with me? Why am I like this? And you just feel like a horrible person sometimes. But maybe it's not because you're a horrible person. Maybe it's because it's a pattern that you have formed in your life through the choices you've made. I mean, imagine, I've been doing the same thing for 30 years, for 20 years, for 10 years, for five years, for six months. It becomes ingrained in you, and that's how you respond. But there's more good news. The brain gets to change over time. Scientists used to think of the brain like a machine, but the consensus is shifting. They find it's much more pliable. It's called neuroplasticity. Now, that's a cool subject to look into. New pathways are formed over time, and in fact, even in stroke victims, where these pathways in the brain are literally killed, new ones are formed around it so that function can be restored. It's just so amazing how the brain can renew itself. Romans 12, 2, first part of that verse. Do not be conformed to the wor uh, this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word transformed is a unique word. It's found in only two other places in scripture. One is that verse from 1 Corinthians, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And the other is at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transformed in front of his disciples. That, that ain't a little word. It's a big word. Transformed. You can become new through the renewal of your mind. 
And this is more than just some physical rewiring, like my habits have changed. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I find this very interesting. He's talking about we're not walking in flesh. We're using divine warfare. And then he's talking about arguments, opinions, taking thoughts captive. To me, that doesn't strike me as divine. That's a very mental exercise. But I think that's the point. There's a lot more going on than just our brain thinking thoughts. It's a battle up there. Some people call it the battlefield of the mind. <laughs> uh, it says opinions raised against the knowledge of God. You ever have an opinion about yourself that contradicts what God said? We've all failed. Sometimes we royally fail. And in those big moments when it's like, wow, I'm just, I just feel like worthless slime. Well, too bad. It's not about how I feel like I am. It's about who he says I am. That's what matters. But if we're entertaining wrong thoughts, it can be hard to believe what God so clearly says. Hmm. What we think on, it'll become a reality to us. Even if it's a lie, it'll seem real to us. Again, it's a battle. And in warfare, when an enemy trespasses into our territory, we take them prisoner. So when these thoughts trespass into our minds, we take them captive. Say, you don't belong here. You're going back to hell where you belong. It's not an easy process, but is, it is a process that gets easier over time. So, what's the point of all this? What's the takeaway? How do we keep watch over our inner life? It's my prayer that we would all realize we have far more influence over what goes on inside of us than we realize. This is a very deep well that we can tap into, and I don't have as much of an answer as I'd like. But in my years of digging into this stuff, I've learned a few things, and I'd like to share a few of them with you. Four suggestions, things that are pretty simple in theory <laughs> that we can practice on a day-to-day -day basis. And number one is make a habit of thankful prayer. I'm sure most of us realize the significance of prayer. It's important. But not all prayer is equal. That's a message in and of itself right there. <laughs> and Eric's message on thankfulness made so many good points, and this is one of them. It's not about being thankful for a particular circumstance in your life. It's about having a posture of thankfulness. Like regardless of the circumstances that fly by, like I'm going to be thankful to God. Okay, so this thing is terrible. Yeah, that's terrible. But I'm thankful for who God is. I'm thankful for what he's done. I'm thankful for what he's going to do. And when I keep that posture, that just gives me peace that's like, a barrier. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you have that thankfulness, it's hard to be discontented. It's hard to be frustrated when you're just thankful protects you from the bitterness and the loneliness and the anger and all those little things that want to come in and steal from us. I know um, not a day goes by now that I don't take a moment to reflect in thankfulness. And sometimes it's 
It's not till the end of the day. But I used to never think about it. I used to never just sit back and just not even say anything, but just be thankful. So I'm not doing as well as I would like to do, but I'm doing better than I have been. It's a process, and some things take time. And if it feels like it's taking longer than it should for you, don't be discouraged, but keep pressing on. Make a habit of thankful prayer. Number two, take responsibility for your own growth. For myself, I found, my, I found me to be a little too passive with intentionality. Now, I'm, I'm always reading things. I'm always trying to dive in and better myself and do all that stuff. But particularly in this aspect of friendship. I've been a little lax. My weakness has always been humor. I love to laugh, and I will often sacrifice who I am for the sake of a laugh. The things that I know, like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not about that, but, oh, hey, look, they're laughing at it, and I want to join in, I want to be a part of this, and sacrifice what I knew about myself just for that humor. And that's not anybody else's fault. That's on me. I am no victim. The Holy Spirit is within me. God is with me. I have no excuse. So when people do things, I need to say, hey, I don't want to be a part of that. I need to let my friends know. Like, I don't want to be like that anymore. Be honest with your friends. Be upfront with your relationships. Don't just go with the flow. Take responsibility for yourself. Hmm. It's really important. You've got to be intentional about who you are becoming, who you are in Jesus. Because it's not just going to happen like that. If you just go with the flow, you go down. It's a downhill, and you will roll downhill if you just go with the flow. Be intentional and take responsibility for your own growth. Number three, be willing to obey for a long time. I just had this fear in me that God would ask me to give up something that I didn't want to let go. And I knew what they were. Did them every day, and I'm like, had this fear, like, what if he tells me to let go? Because I didn't think I could let go if he said, you don't need to do that anymore. We all have those things. I don't need to tell him. It's whatever it's, you know, hey, give up drinking. Stop watching those shows. Give away your game console. Sell those golf clubs. Whatever it is. God, here's the thing. God isn't against us having things. He's against things having us. It's really represented in the rich, young ruler. He came, he came to Jesus. He's like, what do I need to do for, to get life? Jesus says, hey, here's a bunch of things. And he's like, I've done all those. And then Jesus looked at him, and it says he loved him. And because he loved him, he said, there's one thing you lack. Sell all your stuff and come and follow me. And he walked away sad because his stuff had him. He couldn't let go of it. You know, the funny thing is, Almost all of those things I was so afraid to let go of, I don't even do anymore. I gave them up. I had no desire for them anymore. I think that's a perfect picture of eternity. You know, when we step onto the other side of eternity, the things that are important to us right now, are they still going to be important, or will they have been a waste of time? Hmm. Good questions. And I guess it comes down to do we trust God? Because if God says, do this thing, it's because it leads to life. And if he says, let go of that thing, it's because it's detracting from life, even if we think it's cool, even if we think it's nice. And we have to trust him and say, yeah, I can obey. And in the midst of that where I was afraid, I'm like, I knew I I can't let go of this. I still was able to say a prayer. I said, Lord, I don't think I can let go of these things now, but I want to be able to. 
I think that's important. Be willing to obey and say, Lord, I want to be willing. And number four, seek discipleship. This is convenient how this happened. Just a few days ago, talking with a friend over Facebook Messenger, just chatting. He's a good friend. And going along, and I say something kind of funny to him, and he laughs, and then he just confronts me on it. He just, right there. And with all my grace and maturity, on the inside I go, who does this jerk think he is? And as I'm thinking about how to defend myself there, the thought comes to me, what if he's right? So I asked God, Lord, is he right? And he said, yep. I said, oh, great. <laughs> but it was great because we connected through that and we got closer through that. Our relationship isn't, I don't see it as discipleship, like, oh, yes, I'm discipling or something like that. It's just a friendship. But it doesn't matter if you've been saved two months or 40 years, there's more for you to learn. There's always more to learn. And we learn in relationship with one another. God can show us stuff by, our, by ourselves. It happens to me a lot. But more often than not, he chooses to use people. And uh, talking to Eric about this, he said, we won't develop a good inner life if we're constantly agreeing with ourselves. We need others to point out our rough edges so we can be refined. Iron sharpens iron. And that's something the Lord has been pointing out in me lately in my life, that I can't fully know myself by myself. I need relationships. I need to connect with others to see those spots in my own life. And if maturity is our goal, that's sort of the end here, maturity. We need sharpening. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That comes from maturity. That's good fruit, and I want that, not just for me to have a good life, but for the other people around me who so desperately need that, who need a taste to see just how good God is. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Because it's easy to say Jesus is Savior. He saved me for myself. It's harder to say Lord, because that means he has authority. That means he can tell you what to do. It means he can say things, and you have to listen to him. And some people don't really like that. They like the religious experience of Jesus and of church and God. And this is all good, but don't mess with my life. Don't tell me not to do something. Don't tell me to do something. I'm just, this is over here on this day, and then I go on with the rest of my life. And that's the way it is sometimes. But if we are serious about becoming like Jesus, about maturing inside, then we have to be willing to step out there. We have to be willing to say, I want to grow. And that's, sometimes it's in direct choices. Like, I want to take a class. I want to do this. Sometimes it's just with, I want to spend time with people who are going to help me grow. I've heard it said, if you want to be like a prophet, you hang out with a prophet. If you want to be like someone, Hang out with someone. Say, hey, let's, let's catch a coffee sometime. Let's talk. Let me pick your mind. Let's do this. Let's do relationship together. There's a lot of intentionality in this. And without the intentionality, we'll just go through life. And it doesn't mean anything for our salvation. It just means our quality of life. We're going to be stuck going through the same things, getting angry, getting depressed, going around the mountain. Here we are again. Man, I just hate drama. And then the next day, there's drama. You know, it's just, you see it all the time. 
I think a door that's opening, I don't really know all the dynamics, but it's something I'm feeling is really a call to discipleship. Is that if we're going to really grow and not just like have a pretty good life, but if we're going to have the life Jesus wanted, we have to connect on a deeper level. I don't really know what exactly that means, like what that means, but I feel like that's a doorway that's opening, is that we need to really dig in deep into the word, into each other, into God. Let's pray. Lord, I just, I just thank you for all you're doing. I thank you for never giving up on us, never giving up on me in the midst of the times when I had very poor opinions about you. You never gave up on me. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I just pray you would open our ears and our, our eyes to see and hear what you're doing in the midst of everything that we would be willing to step out, to change, to talk to that person, to do whatever it is, Lord. There's so much you want to do, and you want to do it with us. I thank you for that opportunity. And Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come. Be welcome in this place. Do what only you can do. Because in the end of the day, you are the one who's going to catalyze everything. You're the fire. You're the one who opens eyes. You're the one who softens hearts. You're the one who does it all, God. Just thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.